You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that Yahweh your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before Yahweh your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which Yahweh your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that Yahweh your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you live in safety, then to the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to Yahweh. And you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that Yahweh will choose, in one of the tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns, as much as you desire, according to the blessing of Yahweh your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before Yahweh your God in the place that Yahweh your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God in all that you undertake. Take care 
that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. When Yahweh your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that Yahweh your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock, which Yahweh has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of Yahweh. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take, and you shall go to the place that Yahweh will choose, and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of Yahweh your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of Yahweh your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of Yahweh your God. When Yahweh your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way. For every abominable thing that Yahweh hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 659 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 11th, 2023, and that was a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 12. And this music that you hear playing in the background is from an odd group that I just happened to stumble across earlier in the week called Otaiken. I think I'm saying that right, but they're an indigenous Siberian folk and downbeat, down-tempo EDM group. Very interesting. Very interesting music. This track in particular caught my attention because it's titled Genesis, and I thought, well, huh, curious. And then I'm clicking through, and it's like, oh, interesting. The album cover has an ichthus right? It's got the fish symbol that early Christians used to remind themselves of good doctrine with regards to Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking, oh, hmm, well, maybe there's uh, some Christianity in Siberia. Maybe there is 
still, but I don't know that it's here in this group with their music, with their lyrics, with what they're putting out. Actually, some of the translation into English from the music video for this track in particular, it explicitly is encouraging you to get out into nature and to be healed by nature because nature heals better than a shaman and such like that. And so it would appear this is just shamanism, animism, the folk religion of indigenous Siberian people. It's got a great sound. It really does. It's got a really cool sound. Very, very cool. Very interesting. Very different from a lot of the music that I would typically listen to. But interesting, right? Interesting. I like the sound. I, of course, don't like the idea of us becoming shamanists or what have you. I don't like the idea of getting into pagan worship of Mother Nature or the planet or the spirits. That's dangerous. And actually, here in Deuteronomy 12, we see God takes that very seriously and warns us that it's dangerous. And that's why we as Christians believe that it's dangerous because God warns us about it. In fact, he says here in Deuteronomy 12, when you go in, when I give you this land, when your land increases, be careful, take care that you are not worshiping me like the nations that I'm driving out before you worship their gods. I don't want that. I don't want to be worshiped the way that they worship their gods. And at the last Before we get into chapter 13 and next episode, at the last in chapter 12, we see this reference to offering up sons and daughters in the fire to their gods, as in that's part of the ritual worship very often of these demons, these false gods, to offer your children as sacrifices to them. God doesn't want that. In fact, he explicitly mentions that exact practice and says, absolutely not. Don't do it. That's an abominable thing. What's curious too, if you think meta-narrative, right? Think about these spirits actually existing and not people just making things up to pass the time because they're bored. Think about if these spirits actually exist and if the people worshiping these spirits really believe that these spirits exist, if there is some kind of an interaction with these demons who are worshipped as gods, and these demons are at war with God, let's say, well then, also too, wouldn't it stand to reason that these demons are by turn trying to enlist their devotees in the war against God on the one hand, and at other times wanting to destroy the image bearers of God as part of that same war against God, wouldn't that stand to reason? Wouldn't that make a lot of sense that these things would go together, that there's a reason why child sacrifice so often ends up being a part of the pagan religions, the pagan rituals? I think it makes a tremendous amount of sense. If the big idea is to make war against God, and that's what these demons were kicked out of heaven because they aspired to it, then down here, we expect they continue on. They carry on with what got them kicked out of heaven in the first place. And that is, they are trying to thwart God's larger purpose. 
They want to thwart God's plan to fill the earth with his image bearers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so what do they spread? They spread false worship and they corrupt the spirit and they pervert the truth. And so their religions also embody, enshrine, and encapsulate that goal and enlist people who join in with those religious practices in that larger rebellion against God. And that's why it's so serious that you don't worship any other gods besides Yahweh God. And that's why it's so serious that you don't dabble in communing with the spirits. You don't mix a little bit of that in with your worship of Yahweh God. God says, don't do it. Don't do it. It's also important to note here that just like God says, don't worship me by offering your sons and your daughters in the fire to me, because that's abominable. Yahweh hates that. He hates that. How can any Christian or anybody who professes to be a Christian claim that abortion is something that the Christian can engage in, something that the Christian can do, and that can be somehow glorifying to God? No, God hates it. The Christian can't do what these pagans are doing when they abort their children. Abortion, by the way, is not a new thing. Abortion has been a practice in pagan societies for all of recorded history. And I'm sure from even before people were writing down history and recording history, I'm sure even before there was abortion. Back in ancient times, it was very typical in some places in the Greco-Roman world to abandon unwanted children to the elements. Say, for instance, in the case of Sparta, they would assess babies for whether they were strong and well-formed, and if they weren't, well then, they were abandoned because only the strongest would be permitted. Sparta wanted to cleanse and purify their race after a fashion, you might say. They wanted to be dominant And part of how they were going to be dominant was practicing something like eugenics in purging anybody who was regarded as defective in infancy. So also in the Roman world, from what I've read, the paterfamilias, the head of the household, the father, could decide, nope, we are just not going to raise this child for whatever reason. For whatever reason, if he said, Abandon this child to the elements. That was that. That was what it would be. And actually what's interesting is in the early centuries of church history, Christians were famous for snatching up, rescuing infants who had been abandoned to the elements to die, left to die because they weren't wanted. Christians would snatch them up and take them home and raised them. And that is to say, too, that Christians started the first orphanages to take care of these unwanted children and to raise them and to feed them and to house them and to clothe them and to educate them and actually, in turn, to raise them up as Christians or in the Christian faith in any event. And this is actually part of how Christianity came to conquer Rome after a fashion in its way. But 
In Deuteronomy chapter 12, suffice to say, we have God giving the example. In protecting children, he is saying explicitly, so there can be no mistake, do not offer your children to me. For that matter, don't worship me like these nations worship their gods. As a matter of fact, once we're established in the land, I'm going to tell you where I want to be worshipped even. And I want you to worship me in these particular ways where I tell you to worship me. So you have God being a God of order here and saying, not like that, like this. Not like they worship their gods. I want you to worship me here at these times, in these ways, and not in those ways. And that's significant. That is significant. And as I've been saying with the other passages, as we work our way through the Pentateuch, as we work our way through the books of the law, this tells us something about the character of God today. Because the character of God has not changed. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. All that perhaps has changed, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully has changed, is us as we encounter Christ. But God has not changed. His being a God of order instead of a God of chaos has not changed. His saying, I want to be worshipped in this way or in these ways, I do not want to be worshipped in those ways, that hasn't changed. And actually, oh, by the way, can I just say briefly, this passage, this chapter is one of the reasons why conservative Christians theologically very often are concerned when there is innovation in worship or in the practice of the church, whether it's doctrine or its practice, to innovate on what God has given us can imply, (laughs) where we've not been given permission to innovate, it can imply that we are actually smuggling in something pagan. And we are perhaps, possibly, implying that we know better than God. As in, what God said was not sufficient. What God told us to do is not satisfying. We are not content. In other words, we think that God is holding out on us. We think that God is withholding something good that we deserve even. Therefore, he's not just. Therefore, he's not fair. That being mixed in with worship is very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Innovation can be a fine thing. Don't get me wrong. Where God has given us the room to innovate, but if God has told us this is how he wants to be worshipped or this is how he wants to be served or this is how he wants us to relate to one another, we need to be very careful. And this is where the fear of the Lord comes in. We need to be careful because our God is a consuming fire and we do not want to innovate where God has told us, thou shalt and thou shalt not. But, you know, it's worth pointing out, lest anybody get the wrong idea that I'm some kind of a fuddy-duddy, it's worth pointing out, I enjoy creativity. I enjoy when there is room to make something up and invent. And that's part of why, actually, here this past week, I've been enjoying a new board game we picked up. It's going to be part of the homeschooling plan and curriculum for this coming school year. A board game that was released back in 2018 called Root. Root is the name of the game. And it's a lot of fun. 
a game of woodland, might and right, very cute in its art style, but at times very brutal in its mechanics. <laughs> so I'm playing this game, right? I'm playing this game with my three older boys so far. I just ordered the expansion, one of the expansions. There's at least three or four, but I ordered one of the expansions because you can only play one to four players or two to four players, I think is correct, with the base game, with one of the expansions. There's a few that you can pick from that add different factions. You can actually scale that up to playing six players. And it just so happens that I have a fourth son who would like to get in on the action. And possibly my daughter, Evelyn, would like to get in as well and try it out. But we can't, right? We can't if me and the three older ones are playing when we sit down to play. Plus also, we're almost to our fourth game. I think we'll play again tonight. Our fourth game will mean that all of us have played each one of the factions at least once. And we need more factions, right? We need more factions so that we can try out some more factions. So we can try out some more various combinations. But I bring this board game to your attention in part because... I think it's a good example of how conservative Christians, conservative homeschooling Christians can make it clear that we are for creativity. We are for having fun and we don't want to get the reputation that we're sticks in the mud, that we are just sober and serious and against things all the time. No, we should be for some things. We ought to be. We must be, as a matter of fact. Part of why, and let me explain and I'll back up and I'll give my rationalizations for this game in particular, but then also for us studying some excellent board games with our school year, this coming school year. A part of my reasoning is, as I have recently been introduced to the world of board gaming by my friend and one of our pastors at Summit View, Paul Pavlik, I'm realizing that my preconceived notions that board games are fairly two-dimensional and boring. Uh, that preconceived notion is not so much the case. There have been some really fun, fantastic, interesting, deep, dynamic games that have been invented, developed, released in the last couple of decades. And I've been introduced to now several of the finest, including Root, although my first playthrough was with my own sons and we figured it out and it was fun even just to figure it out, to figure out a new game together. Hey, let's read through the rules. It's a complicated game. It's a complex game. Can you do that? Can he do that? Can I try this? Is this according to the rules? How does this mechanic work? And as we have each played a different faction and they're asymmetrical, but they're supposed to be very well balanced. Each of the Woodland factions operates differently, functions differently. They're pursuing different goals, but they're pursuing their different goals in competition with one another for certain resources or areas on the map, at times perhaps cooperating, at other times competing and making war on each other. As we were even just figuring it out and rotating through the different factions, it's been fun to see the last three games, the first three games, I should say, where you come to a mechanic in the game and you're like, Oh, wait, how does this work? Can I do this? And then one of us who's already played that faction in a previous game is able to say, 
Uh, actually, yes, you can. And you can do even more than that. You can do this too. Don't miss this. Or no, you can't. Actually, it works like this and you have to meet these requirements first and then you are allowed to do the thing you're wanting to do. Oh, okay. And of course, right? We, we all, because it's a complex game, but it has an excellent rule book that's easy to follow, easy to cite and refer back to when there's a question of whether something is permissible or not. We have played it wrong, right? We, we have played it wrong. <laughs> Our first game, we played it wrong in several ways, right? We were not understanding certain of the mechanics, like for instance, with regards to cards. Some of the cards we didn't realize you craft, actually, if you come to it and they have an effect. And some of the cards, they have temporary, immediate effects and some have permanent effects where you craft when it comes to your turn, you craft the card in question. And if it's a permanent effect, you put it face up next to your board so that everybody can see you have that and they can know, right? It can be factored into their strategy, how they relate to you. If they know your guys have armor, for instance, they might be careful not to attack you, or they might build up their forces more before they attack you, or they might make sure they have something else up their sleeve before they venture. And we played that totally wrong the first game. But then the second game, we're looking at it and it's like, oh, wait a second. Oh, no, no, we can't do that. We did that last night, but we can't do that today, actually, because that's not correct. We were all wrong, but moving forward, let's do this right, right? Let's do this according to the rules. And what do you know when you play it according to the rules with regards to that mechanic? It actually does make the game more interesting and it's more likely that it's going to be balanced. And whoever wins, everybody will feel more like a winner, even if they didn't win, when we played it the way it's supposed to be played. But another thing about it is there's something to learning to think strategically in an increasingly asymmetrical world that I really, really want for my sons and for my daughter as well, but my sons in particular, because I expect them to grow up and be providers and protectors. And providing and protecting for a family, for an extended family, when the case uh, requires it, when the need arises, but especially their own household, to provide and protect in an asymmetrical world requires that they be able to think and assess threats and opportunities, strengths and weaknesses of theirs and other people along those lines. And so in that respect, playing this game is, I think, very educational and very informative. I think this is good prep for life. In another respect, too, there's something about sitting down to play a board game, especially if it's a well-developed board game like this one is. There's something about sitting down together where there are rules that you have to follow. And the rules are not arbitrary, and you don't just make them up on the fly, and you don't just change them on a whim. When the goal is, we're going to play this game by the rules, and whoever wins, wins, but we're going to all win, in a sense, by playing the game the way that it's supposed to be played, learning the game. When that's your mindset in a game, I think it's good practice for life right now, where there are so many people who are arbitrary and they want to deny. They want to get very angry, actually, 
at the idea of there being rules that they would be required to follow, that there would be expectations, that there would be causal relationships they might be reminded of, not just for other people's sake besides them, but also for their sake. And in a board game, if you're all committed to playing it by the rules, you say on the front end, hey, whatever the rules say, that's what we're going to do. And if there's a question, we're not familiar, we haven't come across this situation before, what are we going to do? We're going to consult the rule book. Or maybe one of us is going to consult the rule book and another one of us is going to look online. BoardGameGeek.com is a great resource, by the way. Their forums typically have lots of Q&A from players who are more experienced, even the developers as well, which is neat. Super neat to see. But one of us might be, a couple of us might be looking online. Hey, can we do this thing? Is that according to the rules? Is that how this dynamic or this mechanic works? And in this way too, I think also we are preparing to be happier and more productive and to be more polite. (laughs) You know, it's good to be competitive. That's excellent. I want my sons to be competitive. I want them to be the kinds who pursue excellence with everything that they have and keep on trying to be more excellent. They want to keep on growing their capacity for excellence and then applying their best efforts, their best energies to where they can excel and do well and where there's a reward. But I also want them as a part of that, not instead of that, to cooperate with those who are on the same team. And insofar as we are a family and we are for one another, we are in each other's corner, we're called to that, that's a requirement, that's an expectation from God, insofar as that is the standard to come to a game like this and to say, we're going to work together to figure this thing out and to play by the rules, even as we compete with each other in the game with a healthy competition, I think that also is something that going into whatever the future years ahead of us, future decades, Lord willing, portend my sons, my daughter, I myself, we are better prepared to make the best of it. So Root, check it out. If you're looking for a good board game to play with family and friends, check it out. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can head on over to BoardGameGeek.com, their entry for it. If you're interested, if you want to read more and check out some reviews and see how complex the game is said to be, what age range it's suitable for, what the typical playtime is, it says 60 to 90 minutes. So far, we have not had a 90-minute game, but I think that's because we're still learning it and we've gotten distracted when we've played it. The times we have, the three times that we have so far, we're getting faster, but nevertheless, check it out, see what you think, and I think you won't be disappointed. Another fun story to talk about, though, this one posted here going on two weeks ago by Hamilton Porter over at Not The Bee, June 30th, 2023, the Musk versus Zuck fight might take place at the Roman Coliseum. Seriously. Now, this is disputed, just to be clear. The Ministry of Culture's office has issued a statement saying there's been no formal contact from the ministry, nor any written document, even if the news appears tasty, it is unfounded. 
they say, nope, it's not happening, but it, it would be entertaining. It would indeed be entertaining if Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg fought at the Roman Coliseum in Rome. If you're not familiar, if you're not aware of this story more broadly, basically the guy who owns Tesla, SpaceX, the boring company, Twitter, you know, that guy, Elon Musk, one of the richest men in the world, has agreed to fight Mark Zuckerberg, the guy who owns Meta, you know, Facebook, Instagram, those properties online. Elon Musk, it is said, is a little out of shape. He says he doesn't work out except to play with his kids. That's as much exercise as he typically gets. But he does, my sons tell me, he does have a little bit of a background in martial arts. He's taken some martial arts training over the years. Maybe it's been a minute. But Zuckerberg, on the other hand, is a much smaller man. He's arguably in much better shape. And he's been competing here recently in Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournaments and winning uh, at least one recently. So UFC is going to host a fight between these two guys. It's all been arranged. And now we wait for them to set the date. And I'm sure they're going to be training and preparing and exercising to get themselves in the best possible shape for the fight. But why I bring this up, why I bring it to your attention is in part because it's an odd juxtaposition to have these two super nerds, these two super geeks who own social media companies saying, yeah, we're going to step into a UFC octagon and pummel each other for the world to watch. You know, they're competitors when it comes to business, they're competitors when it comes to social media, technology, you know, the backbone of the internet these days. It's odd to think of those two types of guys, those two guys stepping into a ring and actually just throwing down. And if they're polite about it and it's all done according to the rules, great, right? But it's still, at the end of the day, it's still a fight. And on some level, maybe it's personal. Who knows, right? Twitter has been, in some sense, under attack ever since Elon Musk bought it. Under attack by the left in every sector. They hate, they hate that Elon Musk bought Twitter with the express purpose of letting people speak who are critical of the left, who contradict the left, who cross-examine the left. The left hates that Elon Musk is for free speech. And even though historically, you and I, if we have been around for a few decades, we might remember a time when the left in the U.S., was all about free speech. They were all about freedom of expression. They were all about all these freedoms. They were liberals, right? How do you be liberal without actually, you know, demanding freedom, the freedom to do and say what you will, go where you will? It used to be that the left was known for that and now not so much. They are for freedom of speech when it comes to saying what they want to say they're not for freedom of speech for those who would criticize them or contradict or cross-examine or hold them accountable. And Elon Musk saying, no, we need to let those people speak. 
As a matter of fact, Elon Musk being one of those people that the left would like to shut up, that they would like to silence. His making Twitter into at least a freer public square to discuss ideas, to share news, that has painted a target on his back for the left, for those who do not share that vision of the good life. They do not share that vision of what would be in the best interest of humanity and the world. Meanwhile, you may have heard, Meta has essentially cloned, they've essentially copy-pasted and made a couple of modifications to the concept of Twitter with a imitation. And their imitation has been released here very recently. And so in a certain sense, you might have Elon Musk feeling very frustrated that he has dropped all this money into buying Twitter. And then what does Facebook do? They try to create a parallel Twitter that will pull users away and give them a meta property to talk back and forth in. And so in some sense, you know, if there's a fight, if there's a challenge, whoever threw down the gauntlet, maybe it's mutual, maybe it's personal. They are competitors, very high profile, and it would seem very obvious to me that they have opposing visions of what the internet and by extension, the real world in years to come, in decades to come, should look like. At a certain point, when the conversation, when the dialogue breaks down, it always comes to something like an octagon. Anyways, speaking of Meta's imitation Twitter, by the way, Meta's Twitter clone launches immediately censors anyone with unapproved thoughts. Joel Abbott reports July 6th over at Not The Bee. Here we have some screenshots tweeted out, funny enough. One says, your thread on threads has been removed. We removed your post on threads because it goes against our community guidelines. Following our guidelines is the only way to prevent your account from being deleted, including your posts, archive, messages, and followers. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Speaking of rules, that one they are very serious about. So you might be wondering, what was the thread on threads that incurred so much of a spicy response? It was only this. Breaking, it has been confirmed that the West Wing of the White House was evacuated due to cocaine being found. The FBI is scrambling to find who it could belong to. So that's factual, right? That's an accurate story, but what might have gotten whoever posted it in trouble, maybe, possibly, is that Hunter Biden's face was the featured image. As if we all weren't thinking it. I mean, we're all thinking it. Who's your first suspect? Uh, Probably Joe Biden's crackhead son. Uh, Probably that guy. You, You found cocaine in the White House and he's been there here recently for the 4th of July? Yeah, it could be the guy who was breaking out in cold sweats and looking super jittery, like he was having a episode on the White House balcony during the fireworks business. You know, it could be, maybe, just possibly that guy, but threads on threads about that, not so welcome. I mean, they do want to differentiate themselves from Twitter after all, right? It gets better. ALX tweets out, This is what happens when users try to follow at Donald J. Trump Jr. on threads. 
Are you sure you want to follow Donald J. Trump Jr.? This account has repeatedly posted false information that was reviewed by independent fact checkers or went against our community guidelines. Follow or cancel? Hmm. Hmm. Similarly, DC Drano tweets out, just downloaded and signed up for the new meta app Threads, meant to imitate Twitter. I posted once about wanting to expose Biden's corrupt government, and they've already flagged me for censorship. Great platform, Zuck. And the same, the same, are you sure you want to follow, greets anybody who would try to follow DC Drano. This account has repeatedly posted false information that was reviewed by independent fact checkers or went against, <laughs> or, <laughs> that's funny, or went against our community guidelines. So they can just determine that it went against their community guidelines without independent fact checkers. Curious. I, I wonder how they make the distinction when they make the distinction. Jack Dorsey, the guy who invented Twitter, who formerly was running it, he tweeted out, all your threads are belong to us, along with a screen capture with the heads up when you go to download threads as an app on the Apple Store. The developer Instagram Incorporated indicated that the app's privacy practices may include handling of data as described below. For more information, see the developer's privacy policy. Data linked to you. The following data may be collected and linked to your identity. Health and fitness, financial info, contact info, user content, browsing history, purchases, location, contacts, search history, identifiers. So that is to say everything. Oh, wait, there's more. There's more. Usage data, sensitive info, diagnostics, other data, all of it, right? All of it. They just grab all of your data if you're on threads, not just what you choose to give them. Supposedly, this is so that you will have a better user experience, but what it really is, is meta doing what they call themselves meta because of, because they work in metadata, they deal in metadata, they are a persuasive technology project designed to engineer choice. And when I say that, I don't just mean to predict. I mean to predict because they will decide. They will help you, I should say, to decide. They will nudge you into deciding to be obedient to the globalist agenda and the brave new world they want you to live in. AOC tweeted out, I was on threads for five minutes, but now I think my app is bricked. It was just as I hit send on a long post of Queen's food recommendations. That's weird. Oh, by the way, you have to delete your whole Instagram account if you decide to remove your account on the threads app. Curious, right? Curious, weird. Why, why would they do that except that they want to engineer your choice to stay? Once you're in there, they want to keep you. Once they've got their tendrils in, they want to keep you. They don't want you going anywhere. That doesn't seem healthy. Michael Schellenberger, journalist, helped with the Twitter files, you may remember. He's quoted here. Meta is already too powerful. One company controls what much of the public is allowed to see. And if Threads succeeds, it will have 80% of the global market outside of Russia and China, according to one industry insider. As such, it's reasonable to expect that Meta will censor precisely the same way the large news media corporations, including the New York Times and corporate advertisers, want it to. More censorship is what the mainstream news media, big corporations, and their celebrity pitch people have been demanding. And here we have 
if we scroll on down, another screen snip, this one of Nitas Rikanth asking, can we ban politics, crypto, and AI from this app? And then Gary V follows up. And can we focus on kindness, kindness, too many E's there, guy. Can we focus on, I don't know, spelling properly and punctuation? That would be my ask. But Zuck responds. Zuck is the less threatening version of Mark Zuckerberg, I guess. We are definitely focusing on kindness and making this a friendly place. Yeah, friendly, I, I bet. Friendly to a certain view of the world, a certain vision of the good life. Let's understand. That's what we mean. That's what you mean. We all know that's what you mean. Friendly to a certain demographic that you regard as fully capable of having a right to participate in the public discourse and not the riffraff, not the rural folk who have conservative ideas, who cross-examine what you guys want to do. Not those people. We don't want those people around here. No, we don't want the Republican conservative types who want to object, draw attention to misbehavior on the part of the left. No, 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 no. Not on their watch. In related news, Virginia Cruda over at the Daily Wire published a piece just yesterday, Judge Nix's Biden request that would allow contact with social media companies. A federal judge, U.S. District Judge Terry Dowdy, denied the request from President Joe Biden's administration on Monday, which was meant to allow members of the Biden administration to continue communicating with social media companies until the case has been appealed. And let me just touch on this briefly and pose the question, what if social media companies were like board games? What if social media companies were like board games where the rules are upfront and fixed? And if somebody wants to make an appeal to a rule, they have to do so openly. I mean, how would it be? Just imagine if you've ever played a board game with friends, family, strangers, anybody. If you've ever played a board game and you're going to try and make a move that might score you some points and they might be points that allow you to win or at least give you a good shot. And a competing player who doesn't want you to win, they want to win. A competing player challenges your move. If you've ever been in that kind of a circumstance and you've thought, gosh, are they right? Or you know, no, I can. I can do this. It's according to the rules. What do you do, right? What do you do? What do they do when you're playing a board game? You grab the rule book or like me and my sons have been doing as we're learning Root, you go and look online. You look at what other people who have played this game, maybe even the developers themselves, have said in some forum, in some message board about the mechanics. And typically in the times we've had to do lookups, both with Twilight Imperium and with Root, when we have gone asking an online community or querying what an online community has already asked and answered, what we find is there's a reference to the rules, maybe even a screenshot of the rule in question that pertains and an explanation how this rule works with this other rule. And that one might also be screen snipped. And that's what it is, right? That settles it. And the person who didn't want you to make that move, but it was a legitimate legal move according to the rules of the game, they might not like it. They might be unhappy, but 
you do what you were going to do to get the points. And if they're not the kind of person that is going to accept that or they're going to be all upset and throw a tantrum about it, maybe you just don't play board games with that person anymore at a certain point. But how would it be? Here's an alternative hypothetical scenario. How would it be if in the midst of playing a board game, one of the other players was just making up new rules? Actually, this happens sometimes with little children. I have eight children, a ninth on the way in November. I have seven sons. I have one daughter. I've seen this happen. I've observed. Usually I overhear it. They don't try to advertise it. They try to do it quietly when the adults aren't listening, aren't paying attention, they think. But have you ever watched kids, heard kids do this where they're playing a game and they're kind of making it up as they go or one has suggested they play the game and the other one has never played it before. And so they're asking, well, how, how do you play? And sometimes the one whose idea it was to play this game just starts making up new rules that guarantee they win always, no matter what. Anything that would allow the other person to score points or to stop them from scoring points is against the rules. Anything that they would do to score points or stop the other player from scoring points is by the rules because what's the game? The game is essentially, I win. (laughs) That's the game. Whatever the game is, that's what it is about is I win. And sometimes I think that's what we have going on with the bureaucratic state and the Biden administration and the Democrat party. But really the establishment of both parties is they just make it up as they go based on whatever will help them to score points and whatever will keep their opponents or their accountability partners from scoring points. You know, how would it be if you were playing a board game and one of the people you were playing with wanted to maintain the right to contact the developer of the game, the writer of the rule book, on the fly in the midst of the game to change the rules in the midst of the game whenever you try to do something that they are afraid might win you the game. How would that be, right? How would you feel about that? You probably wouldn't want to play that game, once you became aware that that's what they were doing behind the scenes, you probably wouldn't want to play that game with that person anymore. But if you couldn't help it, right? If you couldn't avoid it, you have to play this game. There's nowhere to go. This game is actually real life. This game is actually directly tied to your ability to provide for your family or protect yourself, mind your own affairs, live a quiet life, work with your hands, be dependent on no one, walk properly before outsiders. If If the game is unavoidable because all of those things you're called to, which are good things for you to want, to aspire to, all those things actually are all wrapped up in, bound up in this game. How would it be if openly that player started complaining that they could no longer contact the developers privately, secretly, quietly to get the outcome that they want behind the scenes. I mean, looking at this reporting from Virginia Cruda, like the scenario I've just laid out, another option would be that members of the Biden administration or the deep state, Joe Biden himself, if they want 
to say something to social media. They could just say it publicly like the rest of us, right? They could just tweet it publicly to Elon Musk, whatever it is that they want him to do. They want him to take some content down or ban some account or suppress the reach of a certain story. Why is it too much for us to ask that they would state their reasons publicly for all of us to see and evaluate? Why is that so unreasonable? The same question applies to every other social media company that they want to talk with privately, quietly behind the scenes and collaborate with and coordinate with. And oh, by the way, can I just pose for you an additional layer to this scenario? How would it be if you were playing a board game with someone who not only was going to try and pull those kinds of stunts, contacting the developers, asking for rule changes on the fly as you're playing, but doing so covertly in an underhanded way behind the scenes, and then announcing, just announcing what the results of those collaborations were. How would it be if more than that, actually the developer of the board games you're playing wants your opponent to win? In fact, that's part of why they designed the game the way that they did. That's part of why they made the rules the way that they did on the front end. And they weren't expecting you to be smart enough to figure out the rules and actually be able to play the game according to the rules, even though that's your whole shtick, right? That's what you're good at is understanding the rules and abiding by the rules because you are a Republican after all. You are a conservative after all. You are probably, at least in terms of heritage and inheritance and modes of thinking that your ancestors were marinated in for generations, you are probably at least culturally a Christianized student of the word. Whether you know it or not, whether you aspire to it or not, it's just seeped into your thought processes that you pay attention to the fine print. You pay attention to the rules. You follow the rules. You figure out how the game works and you play the game like it's supposed to be played. How would it be if the developer was releasing constant updates as you started to win at various points, they were releasing updates to the game to close off certain avenues to victory for you because actually all along the way, this was supposed to be engineered choice. That was the whole idea behind having the public square here on these terms. How would it be also, by the way, if you were playing a game and in the game, you had this catch-all category called community standards. How would it be if community standards could be thrown at you like a flag on the play for literally any move you might make, any play you might attempt in the game? And if somebody said, well, okay, show me where in the community standards I have actually erred for you to block my move, block my play, how would it be if going on a year and a half after having been kicked out of the game, you still weren't getting any explanation to that question. What would you say? What would you say about playing that game in that arena? Wouldn't you say at a certain point, this game is rigged? And wouldn't you be right? Wouldn't you be right to come to the conclusion that the game is rigged when the rules 
are not fixed and available for all to see and to read and to abide by. You know, what's interesting is in playing root, learning to play root with my sons, it's a very well-organized rule book, like I've said. And also, like I said, when you go online to look up a little bit more explanation on what all distinguishes this concept from that concept, right? Does this rule apply here or are we maybe mixing our terms and our concepts a little bit? When the screen snips come through, they have a section number, a subsection number, and a paragraph number or a paragraph letter. And lo and behold, what you can do when you see that screen snip in the forum discussion on your phone or on the computer, what you can do is you can grab the rule book and you can open it up to that exact spot and you can say to your fellow players playing the game, no, see right here, right? See this? Here's what it reads and hand it to them, right? And typically that goes a lot farther in terms of establishing and maintaining good order and a polite game when you do that, when you can do that, when you make a habit of that versus just saying, no, you can't. Well, why can't I? Because it's against the rules. And that's effectively what it's like when these social media companies start taking content down, banning accounts, shadow banning accounts, shadow banning stories, deranking what would be viral content, what would be a viral news update, forcing certain stories to trend or appear as though they trend, even if they don't ever get that kind of attraction because you're trying to just even create a passing positive association with the things you want people to do and a passing negative association with the things you don't want people to do because it's engineered choice, it's persuasive technology. Remember, Palo Alto, California, look it up. Persuasive Technologies Lab, Stanford's Persuasive Technologies Lab. But that's what it's like when so-called community standards become a catch-all. At the end of the day, you understand that the standard is this community is going to be leftist in its orientation and there is no appeal. And I think it is not too much to ask or require of the Biden administration that if they want to make requests for things to be taken down, certain content to be taken down, certain players in the game to be booted from the game or blocked in their plays, if the Biden administration or any other Democrat or any other activist group or any other international globalist group wants certain things to be amplified or derated, deranked, they should have to make their case in the public square for all to see or else keep it to themselves or else, you know what, like the rest of us, actually respond to this thing publicly so that we can see you debating in real time why this is not correct, why this is not appropriate. How about you jump in there and you debate as if you have to make an argument and persuade us instead of treating us like so many animals to manage in a herd. Is that too much to ask? I don't think that's too much to ask. But they clearly do, in part because they know they would lose. For 
potentially, possibly a good example, though, on the other side of the political spectrum here in the U.S., for possibly a good example of how it could be, how it should be. I'm going to play the first and only clip for this episode, one posted, tweeted out by Link Lauren and embedded in reporting over at Not The Bee from Daniel Plainview. The title of this post is Vivek, that is Vivek Ramaswamy, Vivek got interrupted in Iowa last night by a hysterical woman screaming about abortion. Instead of kicking her out, he let her speak. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. Gender transition today. We're done teaching our troops. Protect our women. Protect our women. Amen. So what just happened there? What just happened is that Vivek Ramaswamy, instead of saying, yeah, go ahead and shut her up, shut her down, get her out of here, security, all right, call 911, this woman is disrupting my event. What did he do instead? He said, wait, 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 wait. No, we have freedom of speech in this country. Freedom of speech is not contingent on us all agreeing all the time. Please come on back, come on back and say what you would like to say, and then I can respond. And what's your name? And thank you for raising your child. Thank you for doing that. And what we don't hear next, because the audio is cut off and that's the end of the clip, what we don't hear next is perhaps some unpacking of why some of what she's saying is valid in the way of concern, but some of what she's saying is maybe not quite valid, is not quite accurate, is not quite correct, or there's more to the story. There's more that we need to focus on upstream of 
these moments, these situations, these kinds of circumstances. What you don't hear is Vivek Ramaswamy actually replying to what the substance of her remarks is. But for the purposes of this discussion, where we're talking about engagement in the public square, free public discourse, the freedom of speech, which is enshrined in our U.S. Constitution, our Bill of Rights. Since that's the topic, that's what we're talking about here. That's what I want to focus on. I do have thoughts on what this gal was screaming at Vivek Ramaswamy, and I'm sure he had thoughts as well. But the big idea I want to key in on is our need to be able to talk through these things openly and to get at a consensus or to have a better consensus than what already exists and how that's not possible with our political system, with our constitution, with our bill of rights, with our form of government. It's not possible if you have the president of the United States or you have activists on one side of the political spectrum being able to shut up anybody who disagrees with them, anybody who would contradict them. What would be so much better is if the Biden administration online were engaging like Vivek Ramaswamy just engaged this woman who disrupted his campaign event in Iowa. They say they're for democracy. And every time a conservative proposes something or does something, they say it's a threat to our democracy. No, no, it's a threat to their reelection chances. That's what they really mean. It's a threat to their legislative agenda. That's what they really mean. At a certain point, we have to move on from debating whether we should be free to debate, cross-examine, question, contradict. At a certain point, we have to get on to the actual meat and potatoes, but you can't, right? You can't get on to the business of making decisions together, which is all politics is. You can't get on to that part if one side says freedom of speech is they get to say whatever they please. And if anybody else who disagrees with them speaks up, that's a travesty. To paraphrase Winston Churchill, we can't get to the part where we're making decisions together, where those who lose an election still believe that they won because they played by the rules, they played the game the way that it's supposed to be played. You can't get to the consent of the governed when one side is constantly changing the rules on the fly because the game is really just they win. The house always wins. And who's the house? Well, they are, right? If this were like a board game, if this were as clear and upfront on social media and in the corporate news media and in the two leading political parties and their conventions, if this were like it is with board games, you would have to explain the rules for all to hear. You would have to be able to cite the rules and be familiar enough with the rules to show in real time and hand to the person you're disagreeing with or you're telling, no, you can't do that. You would have to be able to hand them the rule book and say, see, right here. But if anybody is running and their whole platform is no rules, except we win. No rules, except we get what we want. That's not a game. That's anarchy. That's lawlessness. That is actually the real insurrection insofar as our form of government is we, the people of these United States, we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, we do what? 
right? We do what? We resolve. Well, that is to say, we debated it. We deliberated about it. We made the public aware. We didn't just propagandize. We didn't just give them selectively edited facts and manipulated statistics. We didn't just trot out a diversity hire to act like mom to the journalists when they want to do their job and report. You know, resolve means we were persuaded, means we were talked into what it is that we're going to do, not bribed into it with legal plunder, as Bastiat would say. Or how would it be? If you were playing the game and the developer said, yeah, you know what? The rules are very fluid. The rules are whatever I say they are. That's not actually our system. And you don't get to just make up games within games and ram those through and silence and marginalize and slander whoever says, stop that. No. And yet that's where we're at. That's what's going on. That's what's been going on in this country. And that's why conservatives, so many conservatives, are frustrated and upset and angry. And that isn't to say all the ways that conservatives express their frustration, express their anger are healthy. But if the response is always from the establishment types, you guys need to have better sportsmanship. All the while, one side or the establishment itself of both parties cheats flagrantly, conspires with one another to maintain their lead at all costs, even if it means throwing out the rule book or coming up with a new rule book that's totally arbitrary. I say the bad sportsmanship is on the part of those who are cheating, not on the part of those first and foremost who say, hey, how did you get five aces? (laughs) Hey, you can't do that. Now, just briefly, just ever so briefly, before I let you go for this episode, I want to read for you an article that I stumbled across yesterday as I was recording the KKK's push for compulsory schooling at a federal education department published February, 2023 in reason magazine by Stephanie Slade. She has some quotes, which you would do well to know and to think on first up the greatest duty of America today is to build up our education system. That sentiment probably seems anodyne, Stephanie writes, like something you might have heard on the campaign trail in the recently concluded midterms. A century ago, it represented the top priority of the Ku Klux Klan. Quote, throughout the boom years of the early 1920s, the historian Adam Lotz notes in a 2012 History of Education Quarterly article, quote, every local clan group made education reform a leading goal of its public activism, end quote. Eventually, Lotz writes, a push for compulsory public schooling overseen by a federal cabinet agency became the linchpin of the organization's agenda. Why the Klan's sudden interest in education policy? First and foremost, because of the KKK's virulent nativism and anti-Catholicism. Most private schools at the time were associated with the Catholic Church, while most public schools were openly, if unofficially, Protestant. By requiring all children to attend the latter institutions, Klan members thought they could strip Catholic parishes of an income source, reduce the Catholic hierarchy's ability to indoctrinate the next generation, and secure their own right 
to inculcate values instead. The effort to shutter parochial institutions altogether would soon be halted. In 1922, Oregon passed a law requiring every child to attend a local public school. Supporters, including the KKK, admitted the aim was to drive all private schools in the state out of business. But before the law went into effect, the U.S. Supreme Court deemed it unconstitutional. Get that. Get that. The U.S. Supreme Court deemed a 1922 Oregon law requiring every child to attend a local public school unconstitutional. Undeterred, the Klan continued pursuing its education agenda in the public sphere. Members bullied Catholic teachers and principals into vacating public school jobs. They made donations of Protestant Bibles and agitated for mandatory Protestant prayer and religion classes, and they lined up behind the National Education Association, NEA, the country's largest teachers' union, as it lobbied over more than a decade for the establishment of a federal department of education. The groups wanted an education department that would provide funding to schools across the country, thereby promoting literacy and patriotism. An influx of immigrants had raised concerns that pockets of the country were not being assimilated into the American way of life. Compulsory education was meant to build national unity, ensuring the country's future workers could speak the same language and preparing them to be productive members of society. Supporters of this effort often portrayed it as a grand humanitarian crusade. Quote, we must have a compulsory education system to reach and uplift every future citizen. End quote. National KKK leader Hiram Evans said in 1924, if the campaign was successful, quote, all our humanity might live in harmony, end quote. The cruelly coercive nature of the proposals, nevertheless, was apparent. Quote, we will be a homogenous people, end quote. Evans told a friendly audience in 1923, quote, we will grind out Americans like meat out of a grinder, end quote. Or as an early progressive education reformer chillingly put it in 1902, quote, the nation has a right to demand intelligence and virtue of every citizen and to obtain these by force if necessary, end quote. As the NEA and KKK pushed to federalize education funding, they met opposition from Catholic institutions. The National Catholic Welfare Council, a U.S. body of Catholic bishops and staff, worked diligently to oppose bills that would have elevated an interior department bureau collecting education statistics into its own cabinet agency. America, a Jesuit magazine, editorialized against the legislative proposals as well. Fearing that federal funding of education would lead to federal control of education, Catholic leaders argued that parents must be allowed to determine what kind of schooling was right for their kids. History was on the Catholic side. Education in America had always been a state and local issue, although the founders, quote, wanted a nation of virtuous informed citizens, end quote, wrote Kevin Kosar, then of the R Street Institute in 2015, quote, almost nobody saw educating them as the federal government's job. The Constitution didn't authorize the federal government to make schools policy, end quote. In the 1920s and 30s, opponents were successful at preventing the establishment of a standalone cabinet agency, but the push for a centralized education authority didn't go away, even when the Klan did. Lawmakers in Washington began appropriating school funding in the decades that followed, and a federal Department of Education was officially created in 1979. So, that is the piece. 
You can read it for yourself. You can share it with somebody you know and love. Also, too, might I just put a plug in at this juncture for my book, and this is why we homeschool. Go check it out. Find it on Amazon, for instance. It won't cost you much, but now is the time at this part of the summer to buy it, read it, give it to somebody you know who's thinking about homeschooling, who wants to help their kids to get a good education by doing something different, but they're not sure if homeschooling is the right decision. These are our reasons. These are my reasons personally, and they might help your friend or your family member or you yourself to think through whether you should be homeschooling. But back to the article briefly, the point is not to be manipulative in saying that because the KKK was for a Department of Education, because the KKK was for compulsory schooling, therefore it's wrong. That would be a logical fallacy. I'm not trying to do that to you. But but it is worth noting where ideas come from and who first promulgated the idea of compulsory public schooling in the U.S. is relevant because as John Taylor Gatto makes clear in Weapons of Mass Instruction, for instance, the KKK and the NEA both together were part of a larger push we know today as eugenics. It wasn't just that they wanted intelligent and virtuous people. It was how they believed they could get intelligent, virtuous people that should scare us. It should concern us. It's reasonable for us to be afraid of the ideas inherent to eugenics still being what underpin the idea that we have a federal department of education. What is the department of education pushing right now, by the way? In many cases, across the country and even across the globe, insofar as America helps to set something of a pattern for other countries, not in test scores, of course, but in other ways, what the Department of Education is pushing is effectively the sterilization of those who are mentally ill or who are disturbed or who in many cases are growing up without a father in the home or a father who's engaged. In essence, I would say through engineered choice, the Department of Education, the Biden administration is talking kids into wanting to be rendered incapable of reproducing, which was always a pillar of the eugenics program. Just even think too about the survival of the fittest cosmology, which is taught in the public schools by default, stubbornly maintained despite its lack of intellectual rigor, despite the lack of evidence to support it being applied in the ways that it's applied. Survival of the fittest is what these kids are told how we got here. That's how we got here. And actually, by extension, if that's the closest we get to having a God or if that's the closest we get to God being interested in the affairs of mankind and the rest is for the social engineers to figure out, well then, those who are the wealthiest, those who are the most powerful, they're the fittest. And not just should they be the ones who reproduce, they also should be the ones, more to the point, who decide who reproduces or whose ideas are allowed to spread. There's a very eugenics-type mindset that undergirds social media censorship and 
the appearance of a game that we are all playing together when in actual fact, we are being observed by the folks who believe it's their purview to decide whether we reproduce because they see themselves as in the terminology of behavioral economics, Econs. They see themselves as econs, which is, in some sense, like the high priests of eugenics, kind of like the gods of the eugenics movement. So yes, they're for abortion. Yes, they are for young people who are scared, who are thereby, you would deduce, not as fit to survive. Yes, they are for those who they deem unfit to reproduce, aborting their children. Just like ancient Sparta assessed children based on their fitness and only wanted the fittest in the race so that Sparta would be strong, these econs say the game is for them to observe. They don't play the game with us. They watch us play the game and then they decide who gets to talk, who gets to prosper financially, or who will make a very convenient pawn in their larger games. And this is why we homeschool, ladies and gentlemen, because that is not just inhuman, not just immoral, it's ungodly and even demonic. Going back to Deuteronomy 12, you want to talk about giving the rule book up front and organizing it well to where everybody can look back at the rule book and say, Uh, It says right here, you can't do that. Or it says right here, I can do this, right? Deuteronomy 12, you can eat meat, eat all the meat you want. You love meat, you can eat meat, just don't eat the blood, right? That's against the rules. We also see here a stern warning to not worship Yahweh your God, not serve Yahweh your God like the nations being driven out, worship their gods, including, for instance, for example, burning sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. In a certain sense, the eugenics movement of about a century or so ago wasn't anything new either. It was a very old thing. Eugenics was a very old thing, but eugenics being part of pagan worship of false gods was a very old thing. And oh, by the way, isn't it interesting that God keeps emphasizing again and again and again that he wants first fruits dedicated to him? Isn't that interesting? One almost possibly, perhaps, could come to the conclusion that the pagans worship their demon gods by sacrificing to them leftovers sometimes or oftentimes. And maybe, just maybe, the human sacrifices weren't the wealthiest members of society. Maybe, just maybe, they weren't the kings and the emperors. Maybe, just maybe, they weren't the priests They were slaves, riffraff, those who were deemed the undesirables. Yeah, let's sacrifice those folks. As God warns the people here in Deuteronomy 12 through Moses, the life is in the blood. And so what do the demons want? Really, they just want the blood. That's all. And what did the eugenicists want? They just wanted the blood, really clean blood, but then that always requires the shedding of what is regarded as unclean blood, as they did through the 20th century. And the 21st century could be a hold my beer century 
in relation to the 20th. There's still a ways to go. We're only almost a quarter of the way through the 21st, but it was about this time, a hundred years ago, about this time that we had World War I and World War II. So in conclusion, now that I've sufficiently sobered you and hopefully not done the bait and switch thing, talking about board games, making it all happy and fun, what I want to leave you with is an appreciation of God being a God of order and not a God of chaos, not an arbitrary God, not random. He doesn't call us to be random. In fact, he tells us to be imitators of him, which is to say we're to be orderly as he is orderly. But some, when they have no fear of God before their eyes, they can also be imitators because they are made in God's image. They can be imitators of that orderliness, but things go awry if they mix in the worship of the gods of the nations, if they mix in paganism, things go awry, badly, badly awry. And they start to think they are the ones who will order all. And the problem there is some of this you are not permitted to innovate on. There are certain kinds of innovation that are okay, great, fantastic, wonderful. Yes, please be creative. There are some that are just plain evil. And when they are evil, we have to have the freedom to say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? No, you can't do that. No, you can't. You can't treat people that way. No, you can't make that play. No, stop. And here's why. It is written. It is written. It is written. But I really do have to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.